introduce yourself. Tell us, um, tell us what what your role is in CooperVision, kind of your background, and then how do you solve that problem that that Shane and I were discussing? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, so uh, a little bit about myself, and and then I'll jump into that question. Um, I have a PhD in behavioral economics. Um, it's a it's kind of a oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to stop you right there. So tell me about behavioral economics. Yeah, this sounds kind of like Freakonomics. So you're uh, you're basically then is it true that you're you would be analyzing uh, the why people do things behind or the financial motivations behind why people do things? Is that right? Uh, well, uh, the folks at Freakonomics took a financial view uh, of that. Um, the more general sense of it is. Um, there, there are reasons people do things uh, that are that that may or may not seem rational, uh, but they're also not very mm. good at remembering the things that they do. People are great at justifying, uh, but they're not really good at remembering exactly all the things that we, we do. We live our days, you know, in our moments, and most of those things are just sort of lost to us. We're not recognizing all those all those moments in time. And so what? what a so I get up. I get up and and sorry. I I I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is very interesting to me. And so I'm going to take it where it goes. That's fine. If and I think this is so. Um, I get up in the morning, and uh, I get back from working out, and I want a cup of coffee. Yeah. And depending on if I go to Starbucks or you know the coffee shop down the street, or I make it myself. Sure. There's something behind why I do that every like wh which one I pick. Right. Is that correct? Yeah. And and I just don't I'm not aware of that thing that triggers me. Exactly. And 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 typically in the field we call those system 1 and system 2 decisions. Most of our day we work on system 1 decisions. We know that around noontime I'm going to eat lunch, not because I'm hungry, but because I know that around noontime I eat lunch. It's it relieves my brain from doing a little bit of work and people go through the day sort of relieving their brains of doing work system two decisions hmm. they're uh they they take work in fact it's funny uh you spoke just a few minutes ago and said well you know uh you know it it, it it's it's like doing that wonky research well that wonky research comment was really a system two comment it's like that takes a lot of work and so i won't do that I'll do sort of this mm. system one work, which I know it sort of works and I'll start there. And if it doesn't really work, then I'll engage in this thing called work. Um, Shane, we do too much system one work. Yeah. We got to do more wonky research. There you go. <laughs> okay. No, that's great. Aldo, this is awesome. So please keep going. And so, uh, so, so how yeah. much, how much do you have to train your brain to do more system two work? No. Uh, or, or do we all do system one all the time? We all, we, we could not survive if we were working on system two. I think that the thing that, um, the thing that's important is engaging system two when it needs to. Um, otherwise system one always wins and you go, Oh, well, I don't care anymore. Just do this. Hmm. Um, or I'm hmm. going to stop cause I'm, I'm, you know, I've reached a, a level of frustration or it's just not worth it or whatever else comes into play. Um, and that, that, that really, that idea was the genesis of this. In fact, um, I'll tell you a little bit more about my background, uh, before I jump into the research. As I said, I have a PhD in behavioral economics. I've been with Cooper vision about seven years going on eight and, uh, at Bausch and Lomb before that for about 12 years. 
so about 20 years almost, crossing 20 years in the industry. Prior to that, I, I worked for um, uh, a defense contractor. So uh, it, was a, it was a government agency, which was really interesting and probably a, a talk for another time. Um, yeah. So uh, Is that a promise? Can I get you back on to talk about yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to come back. All right. Um, anyhow, uh, as we talked about sort of what we wanted to do with this lens, one of the things that crosses my mind all the time is that you know, we're, we're really good at, at doing things like surveys and focus groups. But unfortunately, what happens in those things is that people do their best. They're being as truthful as they can possibly be. Um, but, but unfortunately, it misses an enormous amount of information. It's, it's just wide gaps in what, what's really going on. So I turned to, to friends of mine at Carnegie Mellon University. And uh, Carnegie Mellon has a human design school which really focuses on what people do and how they do it so i actually turned to those guys and said hey look here's my problem um i know that uh things are going on people are are, are doing a variety of coping uh in order to live with presbyopia although when i ask them i feel that i'm i'm, I'm probably only scratching the surface of what's actually going on can you help me figure this out and that's when they introduced me to the idea of well maybe we should do some ethnography research now, for those of us not wait, what kind ethnography? Okay. Yep. Uh, so, can you explain that? Yeah, yeah. So, ethnography is really interesting. It, it, what it does is it says, "Hey, how about I just observe you? Um, I'm not going to ask you any questions. I'm actually going to try to be as invisible as I can possibly be to the situation because I really want to just understand what you're doing. Um, I don't want you to process it because if you process it." Unfortunately, system two jumps in and then you'll give me a lot of reasons why, um, most of which are probably not the right answer. Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Michelle Andrew, Dr. Aldo Zaccaro, and Dr. Shane Foster about the research and the approach that CooperVision took to uh, incorporate people's experiences in their daily lives into solving those problems from a multifocal standpoint. So we talked a lot about how did they come up with, with a mechanism to evaluate that for patients, and then how did they translate that into a lens that it's going to be usable. And then Shane and I talked about how do we uh, take that information clinically and help us refine our approach to understanding a patient's visual needs in practice. So please enjoy our conversation. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support us. So what I wanted you all to talk about today uh, was the development from a conception standpoint of a new product and specifically I want to talk about the MyDay uh, multifocal but uh, how, how do you conceive of this new product and then how it gets filtered into how do we know this is going to be good for patients and then how can we test that it's good for patients and that's why I think that it's important Michelle that we have all of you on today. Uh, so Michelle give me a, a sense of Cooper's approach to, um, to new products and new designs and, and how does that how does that work? Hi, Chris. Great to be here again. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming on. You know, when we at, at um, bringing new products to market, we always talk to the eye care professionals that prescribe them, and we talk to the wearers that wear them. 
And it's important for us to get those two perspectives. It's important to understand ultimately the person who's wearing the lenses, what do they love about what's currently available to them in the marketplace? What do they wish that they had that they don't have? And make sure we do more of what they like um, and and sort of correct and fill the gaps where there's, there's things that they wish for that they don't have. And really the same thing from the eye care professional's perspective. And so we always go about it from those two points of view. Um, what's unique with My Day Multifocal is that we looked at the consumer research in a very different way, which shared, it really revealed a, uh, a necessity to understand the wearer's experience when they leave the practice. And, and it was that, that information I think really was um, informed the design of this lens in a unique and different way. Well, I think that's that that is helpful to understand because, you know, from a from a clinician standpoint, I understand there's all these nuances and Shane, maybe I just um, bring you in here as well. Like, I think I understand the nuances of different types of designs in general, but mostly once I get out of school, um, my my approach has been, well, functionally based on this understanding of this particular lens, I think it's going to work best in these patients. But what is really helpful to me, and Shane, you've been involved in a lot of, of research, uh, clinical research as well, um, is to say, okay, well, what about these designs on the back end work? Um, but you're saying, Michelle, that, that you're saying we can figure all of this out on the front end if we ask the right questions and get the right information. Is that correct? Yes. Shane, do you ever think about that? Like if you think, because we'll get into the clinical stuff in just a second, but Shane, do you ever think about all those other designs when you're fitting a lens? Um, or or do you take a, a, a little bit of a, like what's your approach when you're fitting a uh, multifocal contact lens in general? Are there things you're looking for in a patient? Right. I, I think it's kind of difficult because I, I explain this to patients too when we start a fitting is all these lens designs are kind of proprietary. Uh, so we don't know exactly who they work best for. So we start with our go-to that seems to work for the majority of patients and we go from there. So if a patient has difficulty with the first design, then you know we can tweak things, adjust the power here and there. And if it just really seems like we're not getting anywhere, we'll move to the next design. So um, I think that's what's been missing is kind of a, a way to figure out which lens is appropriate for which type of candidate. And I don't feel like I've ever had a good understanding of that um, from, from the fitting guides or from, from the industry. Yeah, and I think, um, I think the more, the better questions we ask on the front end of what the needs are of our patients, I think the, the more we can understand if we're gonna design a lens that will fit that type of patient, what then, okay, well, what is it about that patient that makes them unique and makes it work for so many? I think that's, you know, because you get into, and we'll get probably into this a little bit more, Shane, but, you know, I've always thought about, well, do I measure pupil sizes and different lighting and, and how accurate do I need to be there? If I, if I were going to measure pupil sizes, is, is just my estimation in a clinical exam room, is that appropriate? Or would it be best if I used a widget uh, on the front end and measured mesopic and photo? topic and, you know, scotopic conditions. So then I can say, okay, well, this design is going to be better or that design is going to be better, but nobody does that. I mean, unless you're, unless you're actually doing really uh, like uh, wonky research, which we need, but if you, unless you're doing that, nobody's going to actually do that in clinical practice. So 
I think the cool part about this lens, from my understanding, is that, look, we have people that said, look, what do you, we need to solve? Uh, and that's where I want to ask you, uh, Aldo, is how do you understand uh, taking, um, taking that idea of what do we need to solve for? And then how do you aggregate that information? How did you go about, um, first of all, Aldo, introduce yourself. Tell us, um, tell us what, what your role is in Cooper Vision, kind of your background, and then how do you solve that problem that, that Shane and I were discussing? Yeah, yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, so uh, a little bit about myself, and, and then I'll jump into that question. Um, I have a PhD in behavioral economics. Um, oh, hold on, a, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm going to stop you right there. So tell me about behavioral uh -huh. economics. This sounds kind of like Freakonomics. Yeah, so you're you're basically then. It, is uh, it true that you're you would be analyzing uh, the why people do things behind or the financial motivations behind why people do things? Is that right? Uh, well, uh, the folks at Freakonomics took a financial view uh, of that. Um, the more general sense of it is. Um, there, there are people do things uh, that are that that may or may not seem rational, uh, hmm. but they're also not very good at remembering the things that they do. People are great at justifying, uh, but they're not really good at remembering exactly all the things that we, we do. We live our days, you know, in our moments, and most of those things are just sort of lost to us. We're not recognizing all those all those moments in time. So I and get so up, what, I get up and, and sorry, I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is very interesting to me. <laughs> and so I'm going to take it where it goes. If, That's fine. and I think this is, so, um, I get up in the morning and, uh, I get back from working out and I want a cup of coffee. And depending yeah. on if I go to Starbucks or, you know, the coffee shop down the street, or I make it myself, there's something behind sure. why I do that every, like wh which one I pick. Is that correct? Right. And I just yeah, don't, I'm not aware I, of that thing that triggers me. Exactly. And, and, and typically in the field, we call those system one and system two decisions. Most of our day, we work on system one decisions. We know that around noontime, I'm going to eat lunch, not because I'm hungry, but because I know that around noontime I eat lunch. It's, it, relieves my brain from doing a little bit of work and people go through the day sort of relieving their brains of doing work system hmm. two decisions they're uh they they take work in fact it's funny uh you spoke just a few minutes ago and said well you know uh you know it it, it it's it's like doing that wonky research well that wonky research comment was really a system two comment it's like that takes a lot of work and so I won't do that. Hmm. I'll do sort of this system one work, which I know it sort of works and I'll start there. And if it doesn't really work, then I'll engage in this thing called work. Shane, we do um, too much system one work. We got to do more wonky yeah. research. Okay. No, that's great. Aldo, this is awesome. So please keep going. So how so, much, how much uh, so, do you have to train your brain to do more system two work? Uh, or, or no. do we all do system one all the time? We all we, we could not survive if we were working on system two. I think that the thing that um, the thing that's important is engaging system two when it needs to. Um, otherwise, system one always wins, and you go, oh well, I don't care hmm. anymore. Just do this, hmm. um, or I'm going to stop because I'm I'm you know I've reached a, a level of frustration, or it's just not worth it, or whatever else comes into play. Um, 
and that 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 really that idea was the genesis of this. In fact, um, I'll tell you a little bit more about my background uh, before I jump into the research. As I said, I have a PhD in behavioral economics. I've been with Coopervision about seven years, going on eight, and uh, at Bausch and Lomb before that for about twelve years. Uh, so about twenty years, almost crossing twenty years in the industry. Prior to that, I, I worked for um, uh, a defense contractor, so uh, it was a it was a government agency, which was really interesting and probably a a talk for another time. Yeah, um, is that so, a promise? Can I get uh, you back on to talk about it? Yeah, absolutely. All right. I'd love to come back. Um, anyhow, uh, as we talked about sort of what we wanted to do with this lens, one of the things that crosses my mind all the time is that. You know, we're we're really good at at doing things like surveys and focus groups, but unfortunately, what happens in those things is that people do their best. They're being as truthful as they can possibly be, um, but but unfortunately, it misses an enormous amount of information. It's it's just wide gaps in what what's really going on. So I turned to to friends of mine at Carnegie Mellon University, and uh, Carnegie Mellon has a human design school which really focuses on what people do and how they do it so i actually turned to those guys and said hey look here's my problem um i know that uh things are going on people are are, are doing a variety of coping uh in order to live with presbyopia although when i ask them i feel that i'm i'm, I'm probably only scratching the surface of what's actually going on can you help me figure this out and that's when they introduced me to the idea of, well, maybe we should do some ethnography research. Wait, now, for those of us not ethnography. Okay. Yep. Can you uh, explain that? So, yeah, yeah. So ethnography is really interesting. It, it, what it does is it says, hey, how about I just observe you? Um, I'm not going to ask you any questions. I'm actually going to try to be as invisible as I can possibly be to the situation because I really want to just understand what you're doing. Um, I don't want you to process it because if you process it, unfortunately, system two jumps in mm. and then you'll give me a lot of reasons why, um, most of which are probably not the right answer. Mm. Um, so I just kind of want to watch you. And then the ethnography does that. And so, you know, it, it takes a little bit of time to set this up and it takes a little bit of time to get the right participant. But imagine a participant. What we did to this participant is we outfitted them with a camera. So they, 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 there was a camera on their body. And then we also outfitted cameras in all of their rooms in their house. So not only were we seeing what they saw, but we saw the environment that they were in. So I was the proverbial fly on the wall um, for 14 people over an extended period of time. So we, we, we had 14 people and we generated some 98 hours of video footage of just people engaging in life hmm. and we saw some crazy things and we saw some really hilarious things but they but knew you were recording some... everything it wasn't any of oh, that crazy <laughs> stuff <laughs> no 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 everybody knew what, what was going on in fact they were it, it, it's it's funny because do you think um, they do you think they how long did it take them do you think to kind of get into their normal routine because you know if i had a camera that was always watching what i was doing i think at first i'd probably like make sure I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm like organized. And then you walk into my office right now and it's, you know, there's stuff everywhere. Do you, yeah. did you see any more kind of normalization after the first couple hours of, or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Actually it wasn't even a few hours after a little bit, people forgot. Hmm. 
they forgot there was the camera in the room. They forgot they were wearing the camera. Mm. They, they sort of forgot. But what was really interesting is um, we had these conversations with people beforehand about their vision and what they, what, what they did. And, and, and then we looked afterwards. And nobody actually was able to properly recollect all the things that they were doing, all mm. of their coping mechanisms in order to get by. The, the amount of time they switched between their distance vision or their near vision or the frustrations that they encountered uh, just in, in being able to, 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 to read a bottle, um, to, to, to do the most basic and simplest of things. The, the one example that just sticks with me because the lady was just so she was she was beautiful in describing it, but she was cooking chicken and she had a recipe. And, and she was in the kitchen and she starts out by just kind of talking to us about doing this, this recipe. And that was about two or three minutes of conversation. She's just having with herself sort of knowing that we're there, but, but slowly she forgot all about that because she started to get frustrated. She's like, I got to wash my hands every time I have to change a page. I have to change mm. a page and I have to get my glasses. I have to get my glasses because I can't see. I'm wearing contact lenses and they're not working. And now I have to wash my hands and I have stuff frying. I am, and you can see her, her anxiety level just increase and increase. And she's getting frustrated with the process of cooking. And then near the end, she just starts She's just talking. She's not even talking to us anymore. She's just talking. And she's like, I used to really like cooking. And I don't like cooking mm. anymore. I don't like all of these things. And when you start to see people in this unfiltered fashion, when you start to so, sort of understand how vision and the tasks that they're doing are so intertwined into like their, their happiness state, their, their willingness to engage in other things, um, it it changes the way we look at it. It absolutely changes the way we look at it. So I have never had anybody tell me that detailed of a story about the, the problems or the challenges they're having with their vision. How do I ask better questions to, to draw that out of patients? Because certainly I've got patients, and Shane, you probably have patients that might say, oh yeah, when I read a cookbook. And like, but for me, I'm like, I'm not going down the, the, the fact of, oh yeah, she's having to put on reading glasses wash your hand. I mean, like, I'm not thinking about all those other little nuances. So how do we tease yeah. out as clinicians, those stories, uh, without telling somebody they're going to be involved in a, in a trial that we're going to watch them do all these things. What's your perspective on that, Aldo? Yeah. yeah I, I think for us is that, um, that we're helping the cl clinician know that the shortcut that people are saying has a list of things behind it. Hmm. And so what, what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to say, you ask the simple question, do you do a lot of cooking? And if, the, if, if that individual says, yeah, I do a lot of cooking, you know that they're going to be engaged in all these steps and this is what's going on and helping you understand how to get there much quicker. Um, it's not that you, know, you don't need to have a therapy session with people, but, but it is triggering all of the things that are behind it. So it's not as simple as uh, or or your level of understanding even though the question is fairly basic and benign has a much deeper uh, a much deeper part to it and that's really what we did with the research I mean we we spent the the folks at Carnegie Mellon are great Ashley Ashley 
and Ray Lin are amazing professors at the school. And, and you know, I, I learned quite a bit about how to interpret the data coming back and how they apply empathy and how they apply compassion to the things that they're, that they're seeing. Hmm. But what we did with their help is we created uh, archetypes. We created these fictional people. Um, and each one of these fictional people had this role in, 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 in life that they, that they played and they portrayed. And that's the kind of information we gave our R and D team. And we said, you're not, you're not fixing, um, a problem about vision because you're, you're, you're trying to work some, some, um, technical requirement. Um, this and is when you say technical requirement, you're saying not to just see a line on a chart. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because the the way Cindy in, engaged was I need to be able to see and, and and Cindy Cindy is a real person uh, she's the woman with uh, that did the cooking but in, it's funny because I got to know them by name I'm like what's Beverly doing today and <laughs> how's Dean what's Dean doing today do you text um, them you should but, <laughs> you should just no, check no, in no. with them <laughs> no, see how they're creepy. doing. We learned actually Shane and I, when we were at the vision source, I'm, I'm going to mention this because we were at the vision source exchange. And one of the things that stuck with me, Jesse Itzler talked and, um, and you know who Jesse Itzler is? He sold like uh, some airline company to Warren Buffett and, and his conglomerate and made like $200 million. His wife uh, started Spanx. They're worth like a billion dollars. And um, oh, wow. anyway, he, he came and gave us a keynote. And one of the things he said that was really impactful to me was just, you know, the and, I, and you don't do this. Like I wasn't, his reason for doing it was not because it was like he was going to get something out of it long term, but he was reflecting to say, I did get things out of it by just staying in contact with people. So like sending three texts a day, you know, just checking in on people. I just yeah. thought that's why, that's why it came up. And I, I've been trying to do that more, not because I think I'm going to get something out of it, but because like, it just makes me feel more connected to the people that I like to be connected to. So anyway, um, yeah, yeah you should text them. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's um, a total, that's a total that sidebar, but keep going, please. So Cindy and yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so so what we did for the for the R and D team is we 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 made we made these people with these these tasks and these lives, and we said, look, the the product that you're you're developing is for for those tasks. The clinicals that you're setting up as you're as you're working through whether you think the product is meeting those needs or not, you're you're setting that clinical up with an individual that's like Cindy, that's like Beverly, that's like Eileen. These are the people that you're solving. These are the problems that they have. These are very simple things. Um, can we can we think about solving the problem not in a clinical setting, but let's mm. make sure that as we start to develop our product, we're making sure that the Eileen's of the world, the Beverly's, the Cindy's, they can do that task. And if they can do that task and they feel good about it, that's going to relate to the emotional sense that they have towards their vision, which means that I might not see 2020 perfectly, but the things that I like to do each day, I get done really well. And so my vision is great. Yeah. So that's interesting to me because we get so hung up clinically and Shane, you can jump in here too, if you have additional perspective, but we get so hung up clinically on the number. And I think when we get hung up on the number, I do think this is true that, um, that then our patients get hung up on the number. So like patient comes in and they're doing totally fine. 
and or their their perception is they're doing they're doing fine and they come in and they're seeing 2025 at distance and 2030 at near but but they wouldn't even be aware of their 2030 near vision be, and and then I stick this card in front of them that has three lines that they can't see 2025 2020 2015 and they're trying to hit those and all of a sudden in their mind did I already just plant something that made them feel like oh well I can't see like I thought I could see and so like how do we as clinicians because we got to get we got to check acuity at least at distance but how do we get that information to see whether they're doing well if they are a Cindy that that they've been happy in their environment without like spoiling the cake you know what i'm saying yeah yeah um you know i i like asking very simple questions and 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 quite frankly when we were doing the work it was really in the in the simplicity just tell me the things that um that that are bothering you where 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 is it not working and if and if it's and 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 tell me the activities that you do do you cook are you having fun cooking do you do you watch TV? Do you do crossword puzzles? Do you drive at night? Do you, what are the things that you're doing and where are you bothered in it? And I, and we didn't look for an, an immense amount of detail underneath that from a clinical mm. perspective when our D team, because what I said is, look, I understand. I've, I've seen what, what, what they, I know the, the very detailed steps that are going on. And if somebody says they're okay and that level of frustration in, isn't there and that level of enjoyment is there, um, you got it right. Stop. So then we're asking yeah. more emotional questions is what Very I'm getting much. from you. Hmm. Yeah. What we, one of the things that we discovered is that the emotional connection to vision at it, hmm. when, and, and these were presbyopic people was much higher. It's the, the ability to accomplish what I want to do is much more important than the numeric number of I can see 2020 mm. at near and at far. Um, that was less interesting. It was, am I emotionally satisfied? And when people were emotionally satisfied, regardless of the exact number of their vision, um, that product worked. That is so interesting. Um, and that's that is, what was going so on. So interesting. Yeah. I mean, Shane, Aldo, I'm probably going to come back to you in just a second, but Shane, I want to get your perspective here. Has, have you, are you doing any of that kind of stuff? Cause you know, as we talked before, as you and I have discussed many times about clinical research and your involvement in clinical research, you know, one of the things that I thought was really cool in doing this in our practice at uh, this summer was even just the idea that kind of questions that we were asking people to rank their existing vision with their existing contact lenses and then their new vision um, is a lot of what Aldo is talking about is invoking their their emotional attachment. And what I did, what we found often was patients and I and I asked them, you know, how do you, how how are your contacts? Oh, they're fine. Well, is there anything I can improve about them? No, they're they're good. And then you ask them to rate, rank their their vision, and they're maybe a seven. Their comfort might be a seven. And so that actually informed me to say, well, we probably need to have these types of questionnaires on all of our contact lens patients all of the time. So first, do you do that on a regular basis with a kind of a study like questionnaire on on your contact lens patients just to get an assessment of how well they are doing? No, we never have before. Um, but you know, after seeing some of those questions, and I had the same experience that you did. People that said, "Oh yeah, everything's fine," and then they rank them a six or a seven, and I'm like, "Everything's fine should be a nine or a ten, yeah. I think. Um, so I've kind of gotten into the habit of asking, you know, asking the question, "How are you doing with them?" But then, um, even when somebody says everything's okay, 
you know, I'm going to go in, I'm going to over-refract a little bit. I'm going to see if I can make it better because I tell them, okay is good, but if we, if we can make it better, would you like that? And of course, everybody says, well, well, sure, if I can see better, that would be great. Um, one of the other things that I've done is made sure that I, when I dispense um, a pair of lenses and, you know, say, hey, you're going to have to really try this out in the real world. You know, we can, you can read the chart in here, but that doesn't give us the information we need to know if this is going to be successful for you. So um, I encourage the patient to, to you know, kind of like what Aldo was saying is you forget about the things that you're having trouble with because you just get through your day. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell patients to be really cognizant of when are you having trouble? Make note of that. So if you're saying, gosh, every time I sit in front of my computer, I struggle and I'm trying to, you know, move forward or move back to try to find the right spot. Um, you know, that's what that can be with glasses or contact lenses, really. But it's um, a measure of their satisfaction in those different different areas. And I want that feedback from them so I know where I need to work when they come back for their follow up. So um, I've tried to start having people make note of that. And um, it does it is helpful because patients will say, OK, you told me to you know think about the activities and gosh, you know what? I get through almost everything except when I drive at night. Well, then we know where we need to focus or if we need to tweak the design or change to, you know, um, a single vision only in one eye, something like that. So that's that's been really helpful, Um, but also using real world things. So like you said, we don't care if you're 2020, 2025. We want you to be 20 happy is what I tell patients. And um, they kind of sign on to that. They're okay with that. Um, Tips for that are just. Don't give them the little J card with the tiny, tiny print. Yeah. Have them pull out their cell phone. Can you read your texts? Can you read your emails? Okay, that's good. Yeah, it almost makes me think that like for those, I don't know how you'd articulate it in your chart because we always like to know, okay, well, how well were they seeing here there? But, but it almost makes me think that on those checks, the only thing that we look at like from a numbers standpoint is put up the 2040 line and ask them to read it. Cause that from a liability standpoint, we're basically covering our basis by saying, look, you're legal to drive if, if something, right. right. That's, and that's all we, I mean, that's really what you care about unless the patient's having a challenge. Cause then you just say here, can you read that? You know, that's, that's what your tech does the 2040. And then the doctor comes in and, and asks the other questions. Like, so we don't even give them an opportunity to see all the other lower lines. You're just giving them one line and then asking them more and more about their visual day and what they need help with. And then you can introduce smaller lines if they need smaller lines and all that other kind of stuff. That's really interesting to me. Um, yeah, that's how we always did it. Is we, I mean, we instruct our technicians not to start with the 2020 line. Yeah, you know, you want to start yeah. at 2040, 2030. If they can, if they do that really easily, you can go to the next one. You know, if they start missing a letter or two, well, don't go on to the next line because then it's going to feel like a failure to them or a disappointment uh, when really they're coming in with no complaints. But then they say, oh, well, I couldn't read that smallest mm-hmm. line. There's something wrong with these. Yep. So um, that's, we're changing that's our systems on Monday for sure. We will change those in our practice. I mean, we 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 walk them down, but I think on, on contact lens checks, um, when we have them back on these new designs, I think that's Aldo to your point that that's really key. And we can, again, we're going to know whether or not we need to go further by what the patient tells us, but, but we don't need to introduce um, uncertainty in the situation when a patient's completely happy. And I've done that before, you know, a patient walks in and, and I ask them how they're doing. Oh, I'm doing great, but I'm not sure how well I'm doing because I can't see, you know, and then they, they look at a 2015 line at near and you're like, 
you're you're fine. You're doing great. Um, so Aldo, um, the things that that Shane's talking about, when you get that information, um, how do we? Uh, how do you then translate that into the R&D to tell the story to the R&D team to say, this is how we need to design that lens or, or this is what we're after? And, and do you know kind of what they're modifying and what things they're changing so those lenses achieve those, those types of things? Yeah, so um, I don't know exactly what they're – I mean, they're working in, in a variety of different pathways to sort of get at what offers sort of the, the – the, the cleanest or best answer for them. Um, but what, what they are doing is they are testing those lenses on, on these patients who are, who are, who are doing these tasks and sort of going, Hey, are we, are we, are we creating something that one is um, easy enough to do? I mean, we, we can create a, you know, nth degree of complexity, but is it any marginally? Is it marginally better than 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 one that that's not? And I think one of the things that came out is this design that's a much simpler design than uh, mm. than others would think. Um, mostly because they're working towards making sure that people under certain conditions can can do certain tasks. And you know what? They were able to do it. They're able to do it really well. Um, and so you know, we from a from a from a uh, you know, standing back perspective will go, wow, that lens seems to really work or it's doing its job or great design. Um, it's actually, you know, it's actually a little different than that. It's actually being extremely thoughtful about what the lens is going to do and how, how it's, how it's going to solve that problem. Um, and they didn't have that before, before we, we, what we did in the past is we created these requirements and, and as a result of creating those requirements, they became very complicated in how they were solving that because they were trying to get right into that requirement and solve it as, as best as they could with, with as much specificity and detail around that. Mm. Um, and, and I don't know if it made a better lens, it made a more complicated lens. Um, but I'm not sure, quite sure it made a, a better lens. And I think what you're seeing with what they developed with this lens and the work that we sort of shared with them is, um, a, a number of degrees of complexities went away. Uh, it, it made it easier for practitioners to think about, uh, but at the same time, it makes it a lot easier for um, people to sort of engage with. Um, and at the end of the day, that, you know, quite frankly, that's what matters. If people are wearing the lens and go, you know what, this is great. I can do everything I wanted to do. Perfect. You know, tell a friend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, and that, that's where, you know, once we have that, uh, that device that we can offer to patients, then we get to then we get to see how this all works, and uh, and that's really Shane. You know, we you and I can talk more about that. Is is what you said before is that you know, kind of lens companies always say we got this new lens, it's going to be newer and better. But in your experience so far, we you you've had this since the summer, we've had it since the summer, and we've been blown away as well. Like it is it is that good. So tell me a little bit about um, kind of your. Uh, appraisal of that and where you see it working, um, where you've incorporated into your practice. So I think one of the, um, the ways it's wowed me the most is with these really early emerging presbyopes, uh, that maybe aren't even, you know, you might not even classify them as a presbyope yet, but almost some, you know, somebody who's doing a lot of near work like everybody is, but, <laughs> um, you know, they're 40, uh, maybe they're not um, 
you know, measuring a, f a full plus one and a quarter on the binocular cross cylinder or something like that, but they're, they're struggling a little bit. So they're having that difficulty adjusting focus um, from near to far. And um, I've had difficulty with those in, um, in other lenses because it just, it distorts the, the distance vision too yes. much for them. Yes. So yeah. it, a lot of complaints on these people that are like, okay, it's fine. I can just pop on readers real quick, or I just hold things out further. But this has worked amazingly well in those young emerging presbyopes, in my experience anyway. Um, I have um, a patient that's always been over minus um, since I started seeing him a few years ago. And I get trying to remove the minus because I know he's getting closer to 40 and it's going to be more difficult. And he just always rejects it. He will not kick out that extra minus. And um, so with this lens, I, I when I went to put the lenses or gave him the trials, I kind of wrote over the power so he couldn't see it uh, because I knew that he would look at the power and say, these are going to be, these aren't going to be strong enough. He adapted to it. No problem. Put them in. Boom. He said, these, these feel wonderful. I'm seeing everything perfectly. Um, and then later realized that, well, you're actually in the correct power for you. So maybe that, maybe that's part of the issue too. I mean, um, I, I would share. So oh, go ahead. Go ahead. The only other one I was going to say was actually one of my technicians who's a, um, she just turned 40 and she's a hypero. She's like a plus four. So she's um, obviously starting to struggle with her near vision too, but she couldn't, I mean, she's tried many other multifocals and just can't do it. She said it would, it, it just made her distance, um, you know, to the point that she just couldn't function. So she put those on and she looked out the window and she said, oh, I can see the street sign out the window. Is that the way it's supposed to work? <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. Right. So, um, yeah. and then she's like, wow, and I, I can focus on my computer now too. So, um, you know, it had those people that were just, they really were, we had them in like a really low mono or yeah, really low powered mono vision or something like that, uh, just because they couldn't handle um, the distance blur. And I, I just feel like this is whatever is in that low ad design is working really, really well for those early presbyopes. You know, what I like about that, and I, I share your same experience, what I, my approach always has been for early presbyopes, especially with the type of work that we're doing, is to try to get them into a multifocal lens as soon as possible, because I know that when they're 45 and 50, it's a lot easier for me to adjust those powers because they're more accepting of, of, um, because they've already adapted to a component of that additional multifocal. And, um, and so, uh, but, but the biggest challenge is almost every single one of them that we've had before induces some degradation of distance acuity. And, uh, you know, for whatever, whatever you and I really fully understand, like, okay, well, our day is doing this all day long on a computer. So I don't need to see like a hawk all the time. So we're more accepting of it, but our patients aren't. And so um, that's the, been the beauty is getting those patients earlier into it. And then we should have this whole, you know, ability to transition them over the next five and 10 years is so much easier than waiting until they're finally like fed up enough with whatever their other, and they're willing to now compromise some of their distance vision. Um, and, and so I totally agree with you. I, th I think that's kind of the, the pinnacle of what we can do. I also want to talk a little bit about, because we haven't had this issue, but Michelle, um, we did have a, a panel discussion last month. Uh, well, actually, it was two months ago now, where we, where we sort of um, got a perspective of 
presbyopia in general from uh, from the public. And I think there were five or six people on that. And uh, Shane, um, that panel discussion, what was interesting to me was first, uh, one of the things that, that kept coming up was that their doctors weren't talking to them about options. And one of the things I thought about was probably that's, I don't think they were lying about it. I think, I think what happens is just like you and I, when we go to the doctor, you know, we might, we might hear the thing that's really important or bothering us, but we don't hear all the other stuff they talk about, or we hear it, but it doesn't, doesn't stick. So one of the things that I gathered from that is not to, not to say that the doctor that they're seeing isn't doing a good job. It's that it, they that we probably need to do a better job when they are in their late 30s by saying, look, this is what you're doing now, and we're going to do X, Y, and Z uh, now to fix, to, to make it so that you can do those things easier, but we're also going to do uh, ABC in a year or two years because it's going to be more of that. Um, where as opposed to just saying something like, well, in, in a year you're going to get presbyopia and then we'll address it at that time. And it, it's like in one year and out the other. But I think the point is, is trying to make it concrete to them earlier so that they don't feel like we never talk to them about it. Because my, my worst fear is a patient hears about a new technology and they didn't hear it from me. And, um, and so what are your thoughts about how do you plant that seed early enough so when those emerging presbyopes come back, they're not waiting to get frustrated to talk to you about those things. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I start, um, you know, in the late thirties, start talking about how, Hey, you're doing great with these. Hey, your near vision's still good, but it's, it's going to be coming. And I start to have that conversation about presbyopia, even in the mid to late thirties, um, because, you know, between 20 and 30, I mean, most people, their vision's not changing a whole lot. Things are working pretty well. So it's a it's a great way to celebrate, hey, things are stable. Your prescription's not changed. But just so you know, the next thing that you're going to be looking for is some, a little bit of trouble with near work. And they'll, you know, I say, oh, yeah, my parents were readers or something like that. So it's, it's a good way to start that conversation with them. And then they're not uh, taken aback by it when it actually happens. Uh, it, what is it? I think they say people have to hear things how many times, three times or something to really let it sink in. So if you have that conversation, you know, starting at 37 and then say it at 38, 39, hmm. they're going to, they've heard it enough times that they're, they're not caught off guard by it and they're more accepting of it. Yeah. And then the other thing is when, you, when they're already wearing a contact lens and they're doing great with it, especially if that contact lens is available in a multifocal, you just let them know, Hey, when, when you get to the that point it's a really easy switch they make this same lens uh in a multifocal that'll allow you to just keeps your eyes uh, relaxed a little bit you know uh, i try not to uh say the bifocal word yeah uh, i know me too, too early yeah. on just say this lens is going to relax your eyes a little bit with your computer work because let's face it we're we're all staring at a screen you know hours and hours every day so everybody gets the concept uh, it's just like you said, introducing it early and then uh, walking them through that process. Well, the other thing, uh, yeah, I'm exactly right. And the other thing that I um, gathered from it, and again, I think there was only one person that was that was um, of the of the panel that was really on this, but it was um, he kept making the point that it has to be convenient, it can't interrupt his life, and it has to be. I think he he said cheap, but I, I don't think that's what he meant. It just has to like work in his budget. And then the other th thought 
the thing I think about that is that as doctors, oftentimes we think, okay, well, a daily multifocal lens, that's going to be expensive. My patients aren't going to want it. Right. But you're, but, but tell me about that and tell me your approach to thinking about like, look, first of all, these things aren't expensive re- relative to all the other things that we do. The cup of coffee that almost everybody gets on their way to work, as I was just suggesting, uh, or, you know, most of what, what people are doing, but how do we, how do you frame that in your mind about cost and how do we have those conversations with patients so that it's not detracting to offering them the best technology available? Right. I mean, it's, it's our practice philosophy to always recommend what is the best treatment option for that patient. Uh, we're in an area that's, you know, a little uh, economically depressed. So we, we understand that there are going to be some financial uh, concerns from our patients. But I think our duty as a clinician is to always offer the best treatment option. So that's what we do. And if that means it's a, um, a daily multifocal lens, that, that's what I'm going to offer them. And then knowing that there are different ways that, I mean, we talk to them about the rebates. We talk to them about, um, you know, kind of like you said, comparing it to a cup of coffee. If we break it down and say, hey, daily, this is what this costs you. What's it worth to you to be able to, to see distance and up close and everything um, and have the convenience of a daily disposable and the fact that it's the cleanest, safest and healthiest option for your eyes. I have that discussion with every single patient. And, um, you know, if that's, if it still is not something that works for them, well, then we go to a monthly or a two week or something. But um, again, I think we made it a philosophy in our practice. All of our doctors agreed that dailies are the way to go. Um, and, you know, when you get a material like like the My Day that's so comfortable, again, that's you're not going to have the dryness issues and you're not going to have the complaints of end of day dryness like you would with, with something else. So having that discussion, it's it, it's just a philosophy you have to get into is always offering the best um, treatment option and then going from there, not prejudging the patient thinking, oh, I don't I don't know if they can afford this because it's just that's a disservice to your patient. Well, and, and it also um, it assumes that if if you just go with that right away, you're making the decision that they can't afford something immediately. Like if I'm just like, right. look, it's a it's a it's it's an expensive lens, and then they think, oh, well, it's expensive. The doctor thinks it's expensive. Hmm. Well, as opposed to like not even having that conversation. I mean, if a patient brings it up, well, how much more is this? Well, you can just you can say, you know, with rebates and discounts on annual supplies, this is not that much more expensive than a monthly lens or a two week lens that you're ha- that you're having to clean and store by the time you factor in all of those other things. And oh, by the way, if we can avoid one infection or inflammation event per year, you, you're you're on the plus side of it, right? So right. by by making all like having that conversation with patients, you get you can just um, you offer them the technology, and then they get to experience it. And once they experience it, and they say, "Whoa, oh, it's that much? That is too. That's over my budget." Okay, well, we can put you in something else, and it might not work as well, but we'll do it. Um, but you don't have to say that. But that that might be your approach. I'm going to put you in something else. Now they've they, they've at least seen. Okay, well, we can do this, and it can solve the problem that I have. But maybe it is too expensive for that patient. But we've allowed them to experience it first, and then make the determination that if it is too expensive, fine. We have these other options, and they can they can balance out that as opposed to. I think oftentimes when we get when the first thing that comes up is price or cost, 
then it can make us avoid all these other treatment options that might be really great for that patient and actually not and actually quite cost effective um, with uh, without um, without giving them the ability to at least see because now they can judge oh this is worth it to me I think that's so important and that's been our practice philosophy right. as well. Been- yeah, we have the same, um, you know, we, we basically discuss our fitting cost with the patient sure, up yeah. front because it's going to be the same fitting cost regardless of what design you go into. That's the way we, we do it in my practice anyway. And then from there, yeah, let them experience the the greatest, um, latest, greatest, best technology, most comfortable lens out there. And then the patient can decide. I mean, it might take an extra visit, a little bit more time in your chair, but I think once you give patients that premium lens, they understand why it costs more. And they, you know, nine times out of 10, they're going to go with that one because they, they see the value. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you this and I could probably, Oh, go ahead, Michelle, please. It, it, it's this conversation is reminding me of something, Chris, that you said earlier in the story that Aldo shared about the woman cooking. You know, Chris, you asked the question about how can we ask a better question to help our patients? And, you know, the value proposition is really the value to the patient in the same way that Aldo talked about. If the patient's happy with their vision, that has an emotional component. And so a a question to a patient, tell me about the last time you were really frustrated wearing your glasses, for example, or tell me about the last time your vision really frustrated you. If that woman had said, oh, I love to cook and I can't cook anymore. And here's, it might evoke wouldn't otherwise get because people don't remember. And then these, to be able to offer a product to say, well, what if I could give you a contact lens that would, would change that for you? Now you're having a conversation about a premium lifestyle and a quality of life versus a premium product and the cost of that. And that puts everything back into the hands of the patient and it gives them the opportunity to decide how they value, how they live their lives with different options for visual correction. And it changes the conversation completely. And I think it really ties back to what we learned from ethnography research, which is there's a high emotional value to vision. And it is exceeds the cost of any product, regardless of where that product is. And it's, it's for the patient to determine. And so tying it back to lifestyle and giving them the option to live their best life, they'll decide where that value proposition is. Michelle, you always summarize our conversation so well. I, I don't think I don't think we should we should continue. That, that was perfect. That was a perfect I'm gonna be respectful of your time. Uh, Shane, Michelle, Aldo, this was this gave me a ton of insight. Uh, Aldo, I am gonna plan on picking your brain more about uh, behavioral economics. Yeah. Um, and uh, thanks, thanks so much for being on and, and taking the time today uh, to give us your perspectives about um, about this new technology and how we arrived at the MyDay uh, multifocal. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Chris.